Some details of this case are a bit graphic and may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. It would go unsolved for years, the 1987 murder of 25-year-old Diana Lowry. DNA evidence would lead to a suspect years later, but it would take several more years before that suspect would go to trial. This is South Texas Crime Stories, Justice Served. In 1987, 25-year-old Diana Lowry lived in a duplex on what's now known as Bailey Avenue. This is on the east side near Rigsby Avenue. Lowry lived with her boyfriend, Dale Andrew Martin. Martin came home from work on January 29, 1987, and when he got there, he noticed the door was unlocked. As he walked in calling for Diana, he noticed an unmade bed, a bloody comforter, and a distinct smell, one he described later as, quote, a smell of death. Inside the bathroom, he found Diana, dead in the bathtub. Autopsy reports indicate that Diana had been tied up by the ankles and wrists, sexually assaulted, and strangled. The San Antonio Police Department began investigating and looking for a suspect. While DNA was found at the scene, there was no way to test who that DNA belonged to in the 80s. The case would eventually go cold. We jump ahead to July 2005, 18 years later, and DNA evidence discovered had been tested. It was announced that DNA was a match for a man named Larry Moore. Moore was the landlord of the duplex and had a set of spare keys to Diana's duplex. Police had back in the 80s questioned Moore, but it didn't lead to any arrest. In September 2005, a Bear County grand jury indicted Moore, but that charge was dropped in 2007. According to court records, prosecutors at the time said that further investigation was needed and asked the judge to dismiss the case. Larry Moore was again a free man. It would be another 11 years before the case was looked at. Diana's niece called then-District Attorney Nicholas Nicola Hood and asked for his office to review this case again. His office did and determined there was enough evidence to charge Larry Moore again. It took 30 years, but Larry Moore was indicted on a capital murder charge. Now living in Arizona, he was brought back to Bear County to face that charge in court. Again, the Lowry family would have to wait for a trial to take place. The coronavirus pandemic caused the case to be put on hold, but it was March 2022 when a trial finally began. Hey, it's meteorologist Sarah Spike and meteorologist Katie Blake. We bring you the weather on KSAT 12 News, but there's a lot more to meteorology than just the forecast. We love to talk about all things climate, environment, science, and we even love to answer your viewer questions. And we need more than a few minutes on television to dive into it all. So we invite you to check out our podcast, Whatever the Weather. You can find interesting and informative episodes on topics like hurricanes, winter weather, drought, hail, and much more. But of course, we also have some fun debunking weather myths and folklore 
and sharing what it's like to work in this field. Find this KSAT and Weather Authority original podcast wherever you get your audio. And check out the video version on KSAT.com, KSAT Plus, and YouTube. Just search whatever Whatever the the weather. weather. So Erica, you are our resident court expert here at KSAT. You're our court reporter. And this was a trial you're very familiar with because you spent a lot of time covering this case. Yeah, this trial took place back in March, like we mentioned, March 2022. And yeah, there was a lot of moments in this case that were kind of shocking and disturbing. The details are very disturbing in how Diana Lowry was killed. Um, One thing I do want to mention, we say it was a capital murder case, non-death. This brought up some questions for me because normally my untrained ears, I hear capital murder. Okay, that's going to be a death penalty trial, but it's, it's not in this case. So what that basically means is that the district attorney is not pursuing the death penalty in this case. So when it says non-death, that means if it is a guilty verdict, it's just automatically a life sentence. Okay, that makes more sense. So they're they're not going after the death penalty for this particular. They think life imprisonment would be a fitting char or a fitting result for the crime. Yeah, and we are starting to see more of that in some capital uh, murder cases here in Bear County where there are non-death cases so that it would just be life in prison without parole. And in those opening arguments, Erica, you mentioned this before, there is no filter when it comes to a court hearing. A lot of what we can show on TV and, and talk about even here, it has to be filtered in some way because it's hard to hear, it's gruesome to hear, and a lot of those disturbing details were revealed in those opening arguments. Yeah, they didn't hold back. They wanted the jury to understand exactly what happened to Diana when she was killed in, in 1987. And it's very hard to hear as a woman sitting there in a courtroom. It's It makes you, you know, squirm in your seat. I can imagine what being a juror is like in those positions and having to hear all these disturbing details and seeing photos from autopsy reports and and, and just the manner of what happened to her. It, it's it makes you very uneasy and but you have to hear it to understand why this case is a capital murder case and why the result of him being found guilty is life imprisonment they don't just hand that out lightly the crime he committed it he deserves to be spending the rest of his days in 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 prison and Again, we're talking about those details. We're going to hear a little bit from the courtroom throughout the rest of this podcast. So again, we want to just let people know some of these details are going to be really hard to hear, but they are meaningful when it comes to this case. Yeah, and I think it also, you want the jury to, like I said, to understand what happened. And I think it it, it helps them decide how they will rule in this case. And it definitely made an impact, I will say. Um, Let's talk about the defense's case in all of this. So this would be on the part of of Larry Moore, what they're hoping the jury sides with them, the reasoning they're giving for for their case. One of the main things was they kept saying that, why would he do this? There was no motive for him to do it. He knew them. He had, you know, 
you know, hung out with them a few times. He knew them. They lived next door to him. Why would he do this? He had no reason to do this. So that was one theory that they had out there. Another one was that multiple suspects were in, could have been possible in this case, and not all were tested to prove that there was no DNA match with them. And how it was kind of explained, they consistently used the term, it was detective myopia. And you looked it up, so kind of describe a little bit what that means. So online, we found this de definition. Detective myopia is when investigators make up their mind who committed the crime without sufficient evidence, usually based on bias or prejudice. That's the definition we found online. So they went and listed 10 different names of men who were living in that area, but detectives did not interview or collect DNA samples from. But to me, I'm thinking as I'm sitting there with my own opinion, of course, and I'm always trying to be as biased as possible when I report these cases. But if you already have a DNA match from somebody, do you still go and get evidence or continue to investigate? For me, DNA is just like, okay, that's the person. How can he explain how his DNA got there? But they kept pushing this theory that the cold case detective didn't completely complete her job and that there were still possible suspects out there because he couldn't have did this. He had no motive to do this. My counter for that is he had the means, though. We said it. He had a key to their apartment. He was the landlord. He lived next door. He knew these people. If they can't prove the motive, they can still prove the means. Yeah, exactly. So I, I felt like they were just almost re trying to reach for straws here as far as in a defense and, and seeing that he was not involved in this case or that there was mistakes in this case in the investigation, even suggesting that there was, you know, the DNA samples were contaminated because during this time in the 80s from when those DNA samples were tested, the office had moved. So they were saying during transfer, there could have been some tainting of the DNA samples, but there was all these theories they were kind of throwing out. And I understand it's their job to do this. It's their job to try to show or cast doubt in the jury's mind, because technically you're trying to save this man from a life sentence. So we get they have a job to do, but like I said, it's really hard to disprove scientific evidence in a courtroom, especially DNA evidence. That's a match. Exactly. And just, I mean, I understand your, your explanation and hats off to you for being able to say, you know, this is why this is happening. I couldn't help it. My eyes started rolling. I was like, come on now. You see, you see the evidence you see, they're saying this is a 100% match for me. I'm just like done. Signed, sealed, delivered. Okay. He's, he's guilty. Let's go. And sometimes they will. Like sometimes I'll sit there and I'm like, oh, maybe they have a point. Maybe that could be a reason. Maybe there was a, you know, a tainted sample. How do you disprove that? So I get where they go with this. And sometimes I do sit there and I'm like, oh, that's, that's a good theory. That could possibly. And that's exactly what they want to do for a juror and trying to show them another side or another theory that we can't really explain. Exactly. And obviously lots of testimony throughout this trial, but, um, one of probably the most significant on Larry Moore's behalf is from his wife, Gretchen. And I will correct you. It wasn't on his behalf. She was on the stand from the state. Oh. Yeah, which is strange. But as I was kind of going through this, 
they weren't married when she was on was put on the witness list for the state. They actually got married a few weeks before the trial started, but had been together since 1999. The state subpoenaed her because they had some evidence they wanted her to explain. But because how I think it kind of worked out, it was so close to trial, they still kept her on the witness list because they didn't know that they had gotten married merely weeks before this trial took place. I have questions. <laughs> I have questions now. So I hear that. So they had already had her on their witness list. They said, we're going to talk to Gretchen. Gretchen's going to be our girl with this. She's going to testify against Larry. We're going to be good. Then they get married. Don't tell anyone. I don't think it was like they had to tell anyone necessarily, but I think what they were trying to do Usually when couples are married, you don't have to testify against each other. There is a clause for that. So then that, that makes me wonder, okay, then why did she go through and testify? I don't know if she was already subpoenaed or how it worked out, but she was still on the stand. And obviously a little background on Gretchen. They, you know, Gretchen and Larry are now up in age. And she kept saying she was confused while on the stand. And I don't know if it was an act or what it was. She was like, I can't even remember where we're staying at right now, what street we're on, or how we how we get here. Like she's like, I just I don't even know what the date is. It's kind of how she was presenting herself in the courtroom. So then is she not a reliable witness? That's what they were trying to dispel, the defense. They were trying to use her as someone that wasn't reliable and that her testimony wasn't something that the jury should consider. That's a good thing this podcast doesn't have any video with it because I can't control the eye rolls at this point. This is just, I mean, it's too much. <laughs> it's too much. So I'm going to play just so you can kind of get an understanding how Gretchen was on the stand. So just a little a, a preface before I play it is that she's talking about an email that there was an email response between her and her son. She was angry at her son Um and she, I guess they were having an argument over email about Larry. And she makes some kind of incriminating statements in this email that she's asked to kind of explain. So that's kind of what's going on in the questioning here. Lee, I, you haven't heard this. So here's some of her testimony. I'm going to play for you. And then you can kind of give me your opinion on what you think. Were you and Scott having an argument? Hmm. I was very angry with him, yes. And did you tell him some things about Larry? Not in that letter, but I had in the past, yes. And about that information, did you remind Scott that Larry has always been good to me, as yes. well as with our pets and our home? Yes. And that doesn't erase the long ago crime? I probably wrote that. What might you been referring to? When you, when you said the, the horrible, when you said what you said, you know. Like, a crime committed by, by Larry. When you think of the awful crime that you were referring to in the letter, what, what are you thinking of? I was thinking of a, oh, this is so terrible. Of a, Man, I wish I could have seen all those earlier letters. Um, so what were you thinking? 
I think it had to do with killing somebody. And having thought about these emails, and now thinking about that time that the emails referred to, do you remember what you told me? You know, I've kind of, it, it's done like this in my, in my head. It's like a mishmash in my head. Um, it was a long time ago and my memories of it are not distinct. I would have. What, if anything, do you remember about what Larry told you about killing someone? Oh, gosh, this is terrible. I'm sorry. And I've. I'm not trying to be obstructive. I'm not being obstructive, but I'm, I'm having a mishmash in my head here. You can take a moment. You and Mr. Moore got married. Yes, we recently, yes. You love him. Yes, I do. You're upset right now. Yes. Why are you upset? Well, look at the situation. He's on trial. I'm being asked about things that are harmful. And so. What is it that you believe you know that is harmful? I believe that 20 years ago or whenever it was, um, I believe that he talked to me about um, a situation where somebody, a, a, a woman got killed, if I'm remembering it correctly even. Because we haven't talked about it for 20 years. But. What else do you remember about what you told me? <sighs> I'm pretty having difficulty here with, with what I remember and what I'm mishmashing around with my head here. I'm not in I'm not trying to be obstructive, honestly, but it, I'm, it's confused in my head. But I, and I vaguely recall it, it seems like something happened um, with, with a young woman that, um, that, that may have ended in her being killed. So after seeing that, Lee, what are your initial thoughts? I, I'm torn, to be honest with you, because I don't want to doubt that she's not remembering clearly because 20 years is a, is a long time. I mean, more than 20 years, honestly. It's a long time to remember when and the specific details. But for me, it's what she's not saying and how she looks when she says, sometimes I get this, this vision. And you can see how upsetting it is to her. I think it's the key in what she's not saying there. I think... I think she knows more than she wants to say, but she doesn't want to incriminate her new husband. And it's almost like she's deflecting. Like she keeps stopping herself, blowing her nose or, yeah, or it's just a, a mismatch, mismatch in my head. Um, and she also, if you notice, which is hard for us to, to, you know, be specific on this, but she looks at him often from the corner of her eye, like almost like, Am I saying the right thing? Is this gonna? Is this bad for you? Is this good for you? 
And obviously we don't have a camera on him, so I don't know what his face is doing. But for me, the key in her testimony is what's not being said and her body language. And when she starts kind of leaning into what she's saying and then, and then she draws back. I don't want to shock. It's, it's, it's a mismatch. I don't understand. But then she does say a key thing. It had to do with killing somebody. And it's almost like you knew all these years that he did something wrong, but you never did anything about it. That was my biggest thing is like, if you knew, even if he didn't give you exact details or it was just a, a random conversation, but if somebody I'm with drops comments that, hey, I'm kind of wanted for a crime or I may be tied to a crime of killing somebody, little red flags are going to start going up where I'm just going to be like, uh, excuse me? Yeah. It, you'd have to tie me up in a corner for me not to say something to somebody if you just told me that you killed someone. Even if you didn't give me all the details, I would tell someone immediately. And I think that's what most people's reaction would be. And obviously it was causing friction between her and her children because this is an email, back and forth email exchange with one of her sons who mentions like, hey, don't forget what Larry did. And she mentions also before any of this that, you know, Larry's always been good to her, that he, he's treated her well. And they've had this, you know, great relationship. But it's like, he's still telling you that he possibly killed somebody. Does that not? And obviously her kids are questioning it too. One negates the other. I mean, I think it's as simple as that. Uh, Even if he was wonderful to her and their entire relationship, she seems kind. I don't know this woman. I'm sorry. If someone says, even if they're nice to you, Someone says they possibly killed someone. That negates how nice that they were ever. So to me, that was very damning testimony right. um, for the defense. And they tried to put her in a position of not being a reliable or credible uh, witness. And they you know, questioned how she was very forgetful and could be confusing things and tried to show that with her and and further testimony. But another piece of testimony that was also very damning was the DNA evidence. The serologist who went on the stand and did all the testing for years, he did these testing. He was given samples from her boyfriend, from other possible suspects, and all of them had come back as not matches. But then he explains about the match between Larry Moore and the DNA evidence collected on the scene. Here's that testimony. The swabs at this point obviously are are getting older and older and DNA does degrade over time and the quality of these swabs were already not in the best of conditions, which is not uncommon in forensic science. Rarely do we get pristine samples other than a, a bottle swab taken at the time. So my concern was I wonder if, or I'm not sure if we're going to get analysis or results. Because if the DNA is degraded heavily, it may not provide us a genetic profile on those rectal swab tips that we could make a comparison again to any known standards. At that time, did I tell you that I was confused to do it anyway? I think those were your words. (laughs) And did you? Yes, ma'am, the analysis was complete. What did you find? In this case, 
we created a genetic profile, both with the sex chromosomes and the autosomes. So the genetic profile from the rectal swab tips were created. The known genetic profiles utilizing this technology with Diana Lowry and Larry Moore were created. And we did find on those rectal swab tips a mixture consistent with two individuals. By placing an appropriate match estimate onto it, we would state that it is 780 quintillion times more likely that the typing results are 780 quintillion times more likely if they originated from Diana Lowry and Larry Moore rather than if it was just Diana Lowry and an unknown, unrelated individual. That's a pretty significant percentage. I don't even know what a quintillion is. I can tell you it's a lot. And yeah, I, when he first started talking, okay, that the sample could be degraded, that kind of put a little like, oh no, are they not going to be able to be so sure? But having an expert who does this for a living say, despite the sample possibly being degraded, it is this amount for sure, the mixture between these two people. How do you combat that? How do you combat the actual science of it? And going back to what the defense's whole theory was, that the evidence collection is a method of detective myopia, I'm sorry, no, because he addresses it right there. He says, if it was a mixture of Diana Lowry and Larry, Larry Moore, this is it. If it's a mixture of Diana Lowry and someone else, it's not it. Yeah, so it's just like, how do you explain that? Despite there could be some kind of, you know, it wasn't, a, it was a disintegrated or however he explained it sample, we were still able to get that sample and find this. Exactly. I think that should any doubt the integrity of the sample they might have tried to plant in your in your head as a jury member this should have eliminated that that shred of doubt there yeah so then we go into um closing arguments which were um we hear from the defense we hear from the da you heard some of that audio earlier that i played for you of her describing exactly how she was killed when you see those closing arguments what are your thoughts? My thoughts are that this woman, her last moments on this earth, how terrified she must have been, how much pain she must have been in. She was probably sitting there praying for her life, praying that this wouldn't be how she was taken out of this world. I mean, I have chills just thinking about that testimony again and, and hearing it described what this person did to her. And he's been free for all these years and her life just ended in that moment. It, for me, he's going to get what he deserves. And it's it just, it's hard to hear that. And then you see Larry Moore. So Larry Moore is wheelchair bound at this point, but he's on bond. So you see him coming in and out of the courtroom throughout the trial, sitting in the hallway with his wife, having lunch when there's breaks, so you know, he did show emotion a few times. He cried during the, the, the trial. But I don't think when you hear those details of what happened to her, you can 
have any empathy for what's happening to him. Right. I think Diana Lowry would have loved to have lived the age that he has lived to, would have loved to have been able to share those years with her own loved ones. And then you also have to think about her loved ones who were in the courtroom hearing this too and hearing what her last moments were like because of this one person. So it's hard for me to have any sympathy for Larry Moore or his wife in this moment because of what he did to someone else. So the jury does go back and deliberate. It still takes six hours of deliberation and they come back with the guilty verdict and automatically he is sentenced to life in prison without parole. That's how this trial ended and I don't think there was any other result. For me, like I said, I always try to see both sides. And like I said, sometimes I like, oh, that's a good theory. Maybe that maybe he didn't do it. Maybe he had no motive or reasoning to want to do this. And we'll never know, because Larry Moore didn't take the stand, why he did this. But that DNA evidence ultimately was what sealed the deal in this case, at least for me. Yeah, I think that any shadow of a doubt that you have, that kind of got rid of any of that doubt. And I also want to just hats off to Diana's niece, who called the district attorney again and said, please look back into this case. You know, victims sometimes aren't able to advocate for themselves so family members can be their best advocates. And, you know, hats off to her for, for taking that time and being like, we need to look at this again. She deserves justice. She deserves more. And like you said, you, you titled this podcast Justice Served, and that's truly what happened for her. Yeah, I mean, it took 35 years for it to happen, but it still happened. Um, I know reading back in some of the research of this, in this case, her mother had always hoped that she'd be alive to see justice served, and she she wasn't alive. We hope they're both, you know, up there happy with the results that he was finally caught. The person who did this to their family, to her, was finally caught. And despite him spending so many years free, he will die in jail. It was truly justice served. This is the last episode of season one. We want to thank everyone so much for listening to our podcast. We have been so surprised by all of the positive feedback and we're even more surprised just how many of you have tuned in. Well, we can't wait for season two to begin. We have more stories to tell, including hearing from a San Antonio man who is on death row and gives his first ever interview. Season two of South Texas Crime Stories will return on June 7th.